Good morning, everyone. This morning we find ourselves in Psalm 14. Oh, what a beautiful psalm. It begins this way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You know, when I first read that, it made me think of uh, the movie, God is Not Dead. And uh, it was an interesting movie where the student and the professor were debating about whether there really was a God. Uh, and in the end, I'll never forget that professor was mad at God because his mother died young. And one of the greatest lines in that movie was when the student talked to the professor and the professor admitted he was mad at God. The student said, well, doesn't that mean you believe he's real? Because how can you be mad at someone that's not real? And uh, what a beautiful statement that was by that young man. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that indeed is a very foolish thing. Um, I, I was looking that up this morning, and I wanted to share with you some passages about that. Because they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And every time there is no God comes up, it usually is referring to people really getting wicked and turning away from God. Uh, it's a, it's a, not a good place to believe, to be, to believe there's no God, because then we're making up our own rules. We're going by the ways of the world. We don't have the governor of God's spirit. We don't have the governor of his truth. We make up our own truth. And what it leads to is, is sin. Uh, you know, a psalm very similar to Psalm 14 is Psalm 53. Uh, there is no God. They act corruptly and commit abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Very similar. Uh, listen to Psalm 36. Uh, Transgression declares to the ungodly within his heart, there is no dread of God before their eyes. And if there's no fear of God, you're likely to be very, a person is likely to be very ungodly. Um, Psalm 10, we, we went over this earlier. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And when you're in a place where you don't believe there is God, then you don't seek. And when you don't seek, you don't find. And then you live um, according to your own rules and that does lead to not only destruction on earth, but destruction for eternity. Now, on the flip side, there's so many passages that say things like this. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Psalm 40, or excuse me, Isaiah 45, 5. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Um, the Isaiah 45, 22, look at that. It says it a, a lot just in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 46, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So think about that. Like life really comes down to here it is. Either Jesus is God as a New Testament Christian or 
there is no God. And, you know, your life and your eternity is going to be shaped on whether you believe Jesus is God or whether you believe there is no God. And um, may we may we seek and may we find and we may we come to know and we come to know our Lord Jesus. Now, as this passage goes on, it says in, in verse one, uh, there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it, it gives us the condition of, of mankind. Now, you know, it's interesting because when you see such black and white bold statements like this, it makes you think, well, I'm, you know, I believe in God and you know, I'm trying to do good, right? But yet, even in our goodness, we still are sinners. Even in our desire to follow God, we still err. We still are imperfect before him. So we are like all the rest in that we are all have sinned, all have sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans. So that's us. So that means we have, in some sense, turned aside from God because we're sinners. Now, there are some who might do a lot more sin. But the thing is, is it only takes one to keep you out of heaven. And that's why you need a solution. And, and there's something beautiful about understanding this. Now, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to turn there for a moment. Romans chapter 3, Paul spells out. And there's a, a beautiful thing about it in realizing that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because then it puts us into a situation where we need a solution. Um, he begins this passage about not being good. He says, what then? Are we, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Basically, all are under sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. And now he's quoting from Psalm 14 and other Psalms, if I kept going, about how we've all turned aside from God. And I want to take you to why this is such a, a, an important thing to understand. In Romans chapter 11, Paul, in this beautiful book of Romans, which really lays out the gospel so clearly, the, the high watermark of the book is really Romans 12, 1, which I'm not necessarily going to get to today. But as Paul is closing his argument in chapter 11, to teach us to turn to Jesus, this is what he says. Verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. In God has shut up. Now, if you were to, to, you know, we say shut up, but that's not really what it means here. It, he, it's, it's really God has caught up all in a net. Now, if I said that today, I guess we could still understand it, but we don't typically use nets like they used back then for fish. So it's like God has <clears throat> caught up everyone into a net of disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. like. Imagine if you were a little fish, right? And I was fishing, or, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't matter. But 
you're caught up <clears throat> and I pull you on shore, you're a fish, and I, I pull you on shore with all the other fish and you're in the net. Well, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You are not going to live. You've been caught up and you're in trouble. There's nothing you can do, you know, and that is the condition of mankind. We have all been caught up in a net and we're all going to die apart from God and we wouldn't make it to heaven. But what God has done is he has given Jesus as the final lamb of God so that those who believe in him will live. It's like they get to jump back in the water and keep on living, but only living for eternity. Now, if you were caught up on the shore as a little fish <clears throat> and you were going to die, you'd be like, what do I need to do to live, right? Well, you got to trust in Jesus. And what, what, what the Bible is trying to teach us is that it, if we got to get to the place where we know there's no other God besides him and there's no other way to salvation, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Once we know that, then we can embrace the Savior and we can be saved and we can be forgiven and we can know that we have eternal life. But until we admit we're caught up in the net because we've sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So it's, a, it's actually a beautiful thing to realize what our need is, that we're that fish on shore that's not going to live without Jesus so that we turn to him. Isn't that great? Uh, hallelujah. God's word is so good. Now, this passage, uh, you know, I spent some time on this this morning. It's really interesting. I listened to uh, Vernon McGee is a guy I listen to sometimes, and he looks at this in a very eschatological way, meaning he looks at what we're going to read next in a very end times way. I also read, uh, uh, looked at what John MacArthur had to say this morning, and he didn't say anything about an eschatological view of the rest of this psalm. Isn't it interesting? I want to take you actually to a New Testament passage. Um, and I have a short teaching that I want to give you that I'm, I'm going to be talking a lot about a lot more very soon. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, Paul is, is talking about love. And in verse 12, though, of chapter 13, he says something interesting. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. That is a great passage that is to bring us humility. For now we see in a minute mere dimly, but then one day face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. Listen, we don't know it all right now. We just don't. And we can't accurately discern every prophetic passage in the Bible. And man's got to get off his high horse. And the pride of man is like to think that we've got it all figured out. It is, don't listen to people like that because they're fools and they don't know. Now, people like it when people talk as though they do know, but you got to be wary because people don't know. Listen, I just listened to two great men of God this morning on Psalm 14, 
and they come at this on completely different angles. The other one that saw dimly that I want you to understand is the prophets. Listen, God gave them amazing foresight into things that would happen, but they still only saw dimly. They didn't, they didn't know it all. They didn't see it all. And if they didn't see it all, and then we're trying to interpret what they wrote, and they didn't even know it all, how can we know it all? So listen, we do our best to discern what Scripture has to say, but we, when we're getting into the prophetic, we need to be humble because we only see dimly, and one day we'll see it all. To think that we're going to know it all now is, is really foolhardy. Let me take in the rest of the psalm and you'll see why this is important. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, we already covered all that. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Isn't that interesting? You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. Because we don't know everything. The, the Lord is his refuge. That is true. God is our refuge. Now listen to what, this is where a lot of people differ in interpreting this psalm. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice, and Israel will be glad. Now, <clears throat> I kind of agree with Vernon McGee that this appears to be more of an end times kind of thing. Oh, that salvation, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Now, when they were thinking of that, when they were thinking of ultimately being victorious, and even in speaks here, when the Lord restores his captive people, well, to my understanding, when this psalm was written, the people weren't captive. Uh, David is king, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're not captive like they would be later by the Assyrians and later on by the Babylonians, and Israel wouldn't be home, the Jewish people. Uh, you know, would be in, in foreign lands. And even when they came back and restored their temple, they weren't in charge. The Roman Empire was in charge. And so what were what were the Jewish people thinking of when they said, oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion? Now, most of you know that the prophets didn't really see Jesus coming as a spiritual king in an era known as this church age that we live in now they were looking for to be on top again. They were looking for a ruler to come and rule and reign. And they're right that he is going to come again. And this is now an end times thing. Jesus is coming back again. You know, even as we approach Christmas here and we see that Jesus came, he's coming again, just like the Bible says. He's, they said he was going to come in the Old Testament. And, you know, so they had a lot right. But they weren't looking for what we have now in this spiritual kingdom. They were looking for Jesus to rule and reign out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. So it appears to me in humility, or with humility, 
that this is an end times ultimate salvation. Now, in a sense, you could say the writer of this psalm was right in that salvation did come out of Zion because Jesus died on that cross and brought salvation to us out of Zion. In fact, he even died on Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. That's a whole nother teaching. Uh, but yet, it's not the salvation that they were looking for at the time. Um, they were looking for a restoration of, of Israel. And the Bible has a plan yet for a restoration of Israel in the last days. So I tend to agree with Vernon McGee about that. And yet, you know, like as I mentioned, John MacArthur doesn't really bring up verse 7 in such a way uh, to talk about end times. So there you have it. Uh, we, we do our best. We see dimly right now. And that is such great humility. And you know what it also can do? is when we see, when we realize that we see prophetic things dimly and even the end times dimly, we're supposed to search it out. We're supposed to seek to understand and try to know God. In fact, the book of Revelation says there's a blessing on whoever reads that book. But we have to realize the vast difference between God and us, between the infinite and the finite. And when we do seek to understand the future through prophetic writings, that we we do it we do it humbly. Uh, that is so important. And and unfortunately, if you listen to people that are prideful and think they've got it all right and everyone else is wrong, then you're gonna learn to act like that. And it's it's foolhardy because we're never gonna know until we're on the other side. Even the prophets didn't understand completely. Now, looking back, we can see the arrival of Jesus and we're like, oh, wow, that's really cool that, you know, he came from Bethlehem and he was born from a virgin. So there's going to be a lot of things that we get right. But some of the stuff after it happens, after some end times things begin to happen, we'll look back at the prophetic passages that talk about it and be like, oh, look, it is right. The prophets were right, but now we see more clearly. We see more face to face what he meant before we were just seeing dimly and we did our best, but we didn't really have a clear picture. Now, after it's happened, we have a much clearer picture, just like we do now with Jesus is coming in the first time. We can look back and see which things were exactly the way that they were written. But before that, they saw dimly and we see dimly now. Let's seek God. Let's find out what the prophets had to say, but let's do it humbly. And, uh, you know, praise God that we understand that we've been caught up in a net, but Jesus set us free through the blood of the cross. God bless you all.